you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. If I'd ask you to define the word revival, what would you say? It's a big word, and Merriam-Webster provides numerous definitions. Uh, number one, an act or instance of reviving the state of being revived, such as renewed attention to or interest in something. Point B, a new presentation or publication of something old. Point C is religious revival, a period of renewed religious interest, and they often highly emotional evangelistic meeting or series of meetings. Those are two different possibilities. Or number two, restoration of force, validity, or effect as a contrast contract. That's a bunch of words, but what does it mean? What is revival? And what do we mean by saying uh, a start of revival or how revival starts in 1 Samuel chapter 3. I think a little bit of history will help us to think through and understand why was revival needed in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And if you remember, we have recently, within the last year, looked at the book of Judges. And if you remember, the theme of the book of Judges is um, leadership, and it demonstrates how to be a good leader. But Judges also points to the failures that happen when we choose to live and do what is right in our own eyes and choose to forsake and to turn our backs on who God is and what God says is right. And so the book of Judges starts off with a very good judge, right? Starts off with Othniel. And Othniel is a, is a man who pursues doing what is right. My wife remembers listening to a sermon many, many years ago, and she remembers the guy saying, Othniel was faithful. Did I say that right? Yes, see? All right. And that was like his key line that he just kept saying throughout the whole sermon, and she remembers that. And then you get to the end of the book of Judges, and what is happening? It's just quagmire of sin and rebellion against God. And you see that have drastic consequences, both socially and spiritually. And so what happens? That town in Benjamin rebels. And what happens? All Benjamin goes to war against uh, the, the rest of the nation of Israel. And there's just horrible sin, not only in social context, but just socially and spiritually. It's it's very bad time. And so if you will, Israel in this time period of the judges has hit rock bottom. And so how does God come into a situation that is as desperate and evil as is depicted at the end of Judges, Judges chapter like 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, something like that. I forget the exact chapters, but the very ending chapters of Judges, it's just horrible, just horrible. It's hard to even read. How does God come into a situation like that where God is silent and people have no desire to even pursue after what is righteous and bring a nation, not just an individual, but a whole nation back to God, bring them back to a place where there is renewed fervor for what is right, renewed vigor for pursuing righteousness, for knowing who God is and how God wants them to interact with one another and to interact with Him more importantly. And our story records how Samuel 
is that individual who brings a nation back to a place where God once again chooses to speak to a nation. And I'm not going to propose that um, you are going to be the Samuel for the United States. Possibly you will, uh, but more than likely you will not be. But God has put you in a specific place at a specific time, and it is your responsibility to seek to stir up revival where you are, to seek to bring people back, to remind people on a daily basis of who God is and what God requires of you and of them. And so as you think about that, is that something that you are doing? Are your actions stirring up revival where you are? Are you encouraging, are you motivating the people who you interact with to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness? That is what you and I should be asking ourselves. Are we the type of people who would bring revival in our own lives? Are you and I the type of people that would bring revival into our own family? Are you and I the type of people who are living in such a way that we could revive Emmanuel Baptist Church? Are you and I the type of people who are living lives that are following the characteristics that Samuel demonstrates that would bring revival, spiritual revival, bringing somebody from darkness into light in the neighborhood that God has placed you, in the city that God has placed you? The big idea or the theme is God brings revival through those who honor Him. God brings revival through those who honor Him. And so the question that you and I should be wondering is, how do I have it be said of me that I am one who honors God? What, what describes somebody who is honoring to God in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse, chapter 4, verse 1a? Let's go to the text and read it before we go any further. 1 Samuel chapter 3 through 4, 1a. Verse 1, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. And he answered and said, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Verse 6, Then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And it shall be if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. 
Verse 10. Now the Lord came and stood and called at that, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Verse 15, So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he answered, here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things which he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are willing to revive people who have fallen away from you. We thank you that you are willing to use mere people to accomplish your task of making yourself known and honoring yourself. We pray that as we look at your text that we would be challenged to be people who would be used in this way to bring revival not only to our own lives but also to see that revival is is present in our families, in our church, and in our communities, and in our city. We thank you and praise you for who you are, and in your name we pray. Amen. The text begins, and there is a crisis. Verse 1 doesn't really hold anything back. It's really quite brutal as it describes the situation. It starts off pretty well. Samuel's continuing to faithfully minister before the Lord. It's kind of uh, tying in what we talked about in chapter 2, where you have the contrast between Samuel serving faithfully and what's happening with Eli's sons. They're serving their self. They're pursuing their own desires. And at the end of chapter 2, what happens? God judges. God says, I will punish. Why? Because I am a righteous God. I do what is right. And so it begins by reaffirming some of those ideas, but then the text continues on and it tells us that God's people don't have ready access to God's Word. God's special chosen people, the people that He has chosen and set apart to honor Him, to have a relationship with Him, to point the other nations around them to who He is and how they are to live in life so that they can also come into relationship with Him, so that they can also earn God's favor. 
And this special chosen people with a special chosen purpose in Israel don't have ready access to God's Word. That's a crisis, not only for Israel, but for all the nations around them, for the whole world. God is not speaking. Why? Because they've had the last couple hundred years of generations of judges failing to pursue what is right in God's eyes and pursuing what is right in their own eyes. And so God has quit speaking to the nation. It's a really, really sad narrative. And so God's revelation has grown dim. And it's grown dim because of their constant rebellion, their unwillingness to be instruments of God, instruments of change in their nation. They've pursued their own desires to the neglect of what God desires, what God wants. And so God has cut off revelation from these people. It's an interesting place. And in ways it's hard for us to maybe feel like we can associate with this feeling because we, we commonly talk about how we have God's full revelation here, right? And so it seems maybe a little distant for me and you as we think about this idea that God has cut off revelation and he's not speaking to these people. And we're kind of like, that's not true of me. I, I got the whole Bible. I mean, I was talking to somebody earlier just today and I told them that I probably had 10 Bibles. I mean, like, this is not a problem I face, right? But is it? We may have 10 Bibles. But we, do we take time to actually study them and to see how they are calling us to change, to live in light of what they actually teach? And to just have 10 Bibles that sit on your shelf or, or stay on your phone and they're constantly downloaded. I have like, I don't know, four or five Bibles downloaded now on my phone so that for various things I use various Bibles. But I have all these Bibles on my phone, but... If I'm not using them, I'm facing the same crisis that Israel was facing because God's revelation has been blocked off. And so you and I don't face the same situation in the same way, but we're in danger of facing the same type of situation where God's word is cut off from us. Why? really goes back to the same thing because we decide that my own desires, my own way of approaching life is good enough and I'm not going to spend time to consider what God has to say about the situation. And so you fail to, I fail to at times, seek God's instruction for me in various areas of my life. And so let me encourage you. If you're convicted, that's probably a good thing, and it's also a bad thing. You don't want to be convicted because that means you're doing something wrong. But if you're convicted, then change. Turn around. Do something different. Seek to meditate on God's Word. Seek to see how the truth that it teaches calls on you to live differently. Be willing to come into contact with God's Word. Seek it. And as you come into contact with it, pursue change. Do something different.
The text moves on, though, and it just doesn't leave us at this place in verse 1. Verse 1 is a very, very sad place to be. But how do we get from verse 1 to the very exciting narrative that's recorded in chapter 3, verses 19 through 4, 1a? where we go from a place where the word of the Lord is not commonly coming to people to a place where the whole nation from Dan to Beersheba goes, that guy right there, Samuel, God speaks to him and he tells us and we know what God wants. How does, how does that change? What circumstances need to be true of you and me if we're going to be people who can bring about revival, if we're going to be people who can be instruments that God uses to bring about change, that God uses to bring about truth and to point people to truth? And I think the text points us to two different things. The first one is that we need to be willing, and the second one is that we need to be obedient. Revival comes through a willing servant. Revival comes through a willing servant. And the idea really is in verses 2 through 10 of this passage. And as you look at verses 2 through 3, it seems that it, it's possibly hinting at some of the problems that exist. I'm not completely certain, but it, it seems that it might be hinting at some of these ideas. You have Eli, who is supposed to be the religious leader. He is supposed to be directing people. And as we've looked at the passage so far, we've seen different hints that Eli is missing things. He sees the woman who is in lament, and what does he say? Stop drinking. And then he, he later on, his sons are sitting, and instead of telling them that they are corrupt, he tells the woman who is lamenting before God that she is corrupt. He's, he seems to be spiritually inept. He doesn't quite get it. And it seems that maybe the text is trying to point us to that by saying that his eyes, is, his eyes are growing dim. I think he literally is going blind. But it seems that there might be an like undertone where his blinding eyes, his eyes that are going bad, demonstrate something that is a spiritual problem. And then you have Samuel. And where is Samuel? He's in the lamp. He's by the lamp, and he's by the, the ark. And as he's there, what's happening? All of a sudden, he's going to become God's prophet. He's going to become the source of revelation. He's going to be the one that God tells special knowledge to, and he can now take it and go and tell others. But verses 2 through um, 10 depict Samuel as a willing servant. And you and I need to be willing if we're going to be God's agents of change in this world. Samuel is immediately willing to serve Eli. He hears a call, and what does he do? He comes and he says, here I am. And then, after he says, here I am, he runs to Eli, and what does he say again? Here I am, for you called me. Like, he's just abundantly willing got to like little kids. Little kids are a lot more willing than we are a lot of times. You ask them to do something, it's like, I just really want to help. And they're just so excited about helping. And then we get to be adults and it's like, do dishes? No, no, I don't want to do dishes, okay? But you ask a little kid to help you and they're like, yeah. <laughs> That's Samuel. He's depicted as being willing to help, willing to serve. And 
Samuel goes to Eli no less than three times in rapid succession. Just time after time. And Eli's like, no, I don't need you. Go back and sleep. It's still like 5 a.m., Samuel. Stop. You're hearing things. And finally, after the third time, what happens? Eli finally informs Samuel that it is the Lord. And he says, you know, it's not me calling you, but there is somebody who's calling you, and it's God. And when he calls you, this is what you must do. When he calls you the next time, you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So what does Samuel do? He willingly goes back and he lays down. And when God calls, he answers. He responds willingly to the Lord. Verse 10 records it for us. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Samuel doesn't really know what he's signing himself up for yet. It becomes really apparent as you continue to read on in the story. Because the message that he gets is not really the message that he wanted to give his tutor. And it kind of brings up the question, you're kind of left anticipating, will this prophet be faithful to God? Will this prophet be obedient to God? That's kind of the undertone, and the text answers for us that yes, he will be obedient. Samuel has never received a prophetic message from the Lord, but is willing to receive it. And so as he receives the message from the Lord, something that's new, and the text highlights that. It it tells us that in verse 7, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. I don't think that's saying that he didn't know God in the sense that he didn't know about him. I think what it's highlighting is he'd never been revealed special knowledge by God before. And so this is something unique. This is something different. And that's why Samuel didn't immediately respond, Speak, Lord, your servant hears, because this is all new. But Samuel is depicted as a willing servant. And it brings up the question, are you and I willing to receive God's message of revival? Are you and I willing to receive God's message of revival? You know, God's message of revival is something that you and I are in constant need of. You say, how so? The message of revival is really the gospel message, and it's a message that you're supposed to be preaching to yourself on a daily basis. It's a message that your children need you to teach them on a daily basis. It's a message that your neighbors need to be preached to on a daily basis. It is because of the gospel, it is because of God's grace in our life by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to the world to die for sinners, that you and I are able to live lives that are righteous, that are honoring, that are pleasing to Christ. And it is only through that message that your neighbors will receive forgiveness and the reconciliation that they desperately need with God. Without that gospel message, your neighbors will face a crisis eternity in hell. And so are you willing to receive the message? How do you demonstrate your willingness to receive this message? 
Do you spend regular time in God's Word? Do you seek to spend time studying God's Word? Whether it be through uh, times of preaching, or maybe you can't make it, so you listen online. Do you spend time fellowshipping with other believers, seeking to be edified, to be encouraged, to be motivated and pushed to Christ-likeness? Does your prayer life demonstrate that you are willing to receive God's message? What does your prayer life include? Do you ask God to reveal himself to you? Do you ask God to provide you with the daily revival that you need? You need to be revived on a daily basis. Because your heart is not what it should be. And you need it to be redirected. You need your thoughts and your intents and your motives to be evaluated. And to be redirected by God's truth. You need daily revival. Does your prayer life demonstrate that? All these are signs that we can look at in our life and we can say, does my life demonstrate that I truly want revival? <clears throat> but it's not sufficient to be willing. You and I can be willing, but if we fail to be obedient, we fail the test. And we will not be instruments of change. We will not be instruments of revival in our own life. And we will not be instruments of revival and change in your family's life. And you will not be instruments of change and revival in this church's life or in your community's life. So just to be willing is not enough. We must also follow through with obedience. And you see that Samuel is willing to be obedient. He doesn't simply say, yeah, I'm willing. Okay, God, that's a really bad message. Like, you told me in telling me the message that this message is going to be a message that makes everybody's ears tingle. I don't want to be the bearer of that message. That's a really scary message to go tell your tutor. Hey, God's done with you. Your sins and your son's sins will never be atoned for by sacrifices and offerings. You're done. That is a scary message. We don't know how old Samuel was. He's probably somewhat of a young man. And for a young man to be given that message, to take it to an older gentleman, the religious leader of his time, that's a bold move. He is willing to demonstrate obedience, and he does demonstrate obedience. And if you and I are to be agents of change, if we're to be agents of revival, it's going to require that we both demonstrate a willingness and then follow through and be obedient to what we hear. God tells a terrifying message to Samuel in verse 11. He tells him, I'm going to do something in Israel. And when all of Israel hears it, what's going to happen? Their ears are going to tingle. Like, whoa, God's doing that to his high priest? To the guy that's led our religious system for all these years, God's doing that? 
What is God going to do? In verse 12, And that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house. From beginning to end, everything's going to happen, Samuel. I don't think Samuel knew what God came and told through the man of God to Eli in chapter 2. I think this is all new information that Samuel's getting. I mean, if I was Eli and I got the message that Eli gets in 1 Samuel chapter 2, I would not be broadcasting that far and wide. That's like my private message that I'm keeping to myself and not telling anybody. I don't think he told Samuel. So Samuel's getting this new information. He's like, whoa. From beginning to end, what is this going to happen? Verse 13, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sins made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. It's a scary message. It's a very scary message. Samuel is given the message as a prophet, which implies he's got to tell someone. God doesn't come and give you a special revelation like this just to, you know, go to sleep and have, you know, happy little dreams the rest of the night. No, it's, it's for the purpose of going and telling somebody, hey, this is the situation. And so what happens in verse 15, Samuel goes and he lays down. I don't think Samuel slept from this point until he goes on and opens up the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Eli's family, family sins are so grave that they will not be atoned for. And Samuel is obviously fearful. But Eli won't let it go. Eli knew, because he got woken up four times in the middle of the night, that Samuel was getting a special message from God. God was choosing to have him be a prophet. And so he probably went back to sleep and slept from like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. till whenever he opened up the temple doors. And he sees Samuel, he's like, Samuel, what did God tell you? Come here, my son. And he says, here I am. Once again, a willingness that you see in the life of Samuel. And verse 17, and he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And what does Samuel do? Does he cower in fear and say, This message is really too fearful for me to tell my tutor? I mean, like, Mommy and Daddy have sent me to live here with this guy, and I best not make him very angry because, you know, he might make me cut up all the firewood for supper for the rest of my life. No. Samuel is obedient. He says, this is what God has said, and this is what God will do. He's not only willing, he's also obedient. He proves himself to be a faithful and good prophet. Verse 18, then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord, this is Eli, let him do what seems good to him. It's a very, very sad narrative on the life of Sam, uh, Eli. 
But it brings up the question. Are you obedience to what you know? Are you and I obedience to what we know? There's a whole lot of things that we're supposed to be obedient to, and you know what a lot of them are. But specifically when we think about especially bringing revival to those who are around us. What does that mean that we're going to be obedient to? It's not just the private things that mean you do, though those are required to be obedient in the bigger things, but are we willing to confront one another when we see sin? That's what Samuel's doing. He receives a really frightening message from God and God expects him to go and share it with somebody. Are you willing to confront the person sitting next to you if you see sin in their life? Are you willing to confront your neighbor who does not know Christ and point them to the fact that they are a sinner and that they are bound for hell unless they receive Christ's mercy and place their faith in his finished work? Are you obedient in that area? Revival does not come without people being willing and obedient in these areas. It's very exciting, though. The situation of verse 1 is no longer the case as we enter verse 19. As we enter it, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, and the first part of chapter 4, the crisis has ended. God has a faithful prophet, one will, who will proclaim his word, one who cares about what is right in God's eyes and does not care about what is simply right in his own eyes. And the text tells us that God confirms his prophet. He's growing, and none of his words fall to the ground. The idea is, he says it, and it actually happens. And so his words are confirmed. He doesn't have empty promises. He doesn't have empty words that he says, God said this, and it'll happen in so many years, and ten times that many years pass by, and Israel's kind of looking at it going, uh, didn't he say that that was supposed to happen in so many years, and now we're ten times that many years past, and... What happened to that prophecy? No. When Samuel said, God says, God said it, and God did it. Israel acknowledged that God was using Samuel. In verse 20, And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's from the very north to the very south, the whole Israelite land, knew that God had established as a prophet Samuel. And God begins to reveal His will on a regular basis. And people begin to say, instead of in verse 1, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there is no widespread revelation. God's not revealing Himself. In great contrast, verse 21, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to, Shiloh, to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
And the word of Samuel, which is what? It's God's word. Why? Because he's God's prophet. Where is it going? Why it spread all across Israel. Why? Because Samuel was willing and because he was obedient. A nation is revived through one willing and obedient boy. It's really the story of a boy becoming a man. God can bring about change and begin to work in even the most unlikely of places. When you read verse 1, you are not expecting the end of this narrative in chapter 4 to be such a positive contrast from the beginning of chapter 3. That is not what anybody expects when they hear God's not speaking, there's no widespread revelation. It's like, oh no, we're getting back to Judges, the end of chapters. Those guys, oh. You just want to stop reading because it's going to be disappointing and sad. And but that's not what happens. Why? Because Samuel is willing and he is obedient to God. What does the passage call on you and I to do? I think the first thing that you and I need to do is we need to ask ourselves what kind of revival we are in need of. The way we use the word revival, as was demonstrated even in uh, Merriam-Webster's definitions under religious, there's two different kinds. The one is renewed uh, religious fervor. I don't really like the word religious, but we'll go with it. And the other one refers to like revival meetings where what happened? Generally, we thought of people coming to Christ. And so what you and I need to do is we need to reflect on our life and ask ourselves, what am I depending on to get me to heaven? It's a good question. Why do you think that you will be in heaven? Or maybe you say, well, I don't know if I'll be in heaven. What does the Bible say about how you and I can be revived, can come into a relationship with Christ. The Bible tells us that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world nearly 2,000 years ago. And Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, but that did not save anyone. That did not restore anyone into a right relationship with God. That as Jesus walked and lived in this world, he walked and lived a sinless life. Why? Because it qualified him to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins. Because your sins and my sins deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus Christ bore that penalty for you. And if you and I are willing to confess that we have sinned and place our faith in Jesus Christ and say, it is through you and you alone that I have hope of eternal security. He promises that he will save and he will deliver you from that coming penalty. But just because we've done that, just because we've realized that we are sinners, that Christ is our only hope for salvation from eternal condemnation does not mean that you and I are necessarily living as we should. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are submitting ourselves to God's Word. And if that's you, that's where these second two points come in. Perhaps you are not a 
willing agents of revival. Maybe you look at the culture around you and you're like, you know, I don't really care that much if my neighbor or my family member sins. I don't really care that much if, you know, the neighbor three doors down goes to hell or not. It's not that big of a priority in my life. I know about me, but they're there and I'm here. Or maybe you're just unwilling to be obedient to God's word. God wants us to be both willing and obedient. And if you and I are people who are willing before God, and we are people who are obedient before God, then that takes us back to the big idea. God brings about revival through people who honor Him. And if you are willing before God, and you are obedient before Him, you are the type of person who honors God, and you are the type of person who will be used to bring about revival. Maybe not nationally. Maybe not even in this church. But you can bring about revival in your own life. And hopefully you can encourage and point others in your own family so that they can also come to a place where they are revived and have a renewed fervor, a renewed desire to live for Christ. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you provide us with guidance. You provide us with instruction on how we can live lives that are honoring before you. We pray that we would be your servants who are willing and obedient, and that as we do so, that you would bring about revival, not only in our own hearts, but also in our families, and in our church, and in our communities. In your name we pray. Amen.